Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking our new research on retention, lockdown two, and skills and levelling up. It's all coming up. The students who may be testing positive, and of course they are in a different situation. If they are quarantining because they're positive, they can't get out of their room, unlike the other students. So I do think we are going to have to think of ways in which we can reach these students. And if that involves taking them Christmas dinner, dropping them off a present, I Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, recording from home in lockdown two. And it's been another rollercoaster of a week, but here to take us through the ups and downs of a week in higher education policy, I'm joined by two brilliant guests in London. We have Diana Beach, Chief Executive of London Hire. Diana, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Mark. I'm going to say my highlight was actually just yesterday when I actually got to go to the University of Westminster, one of my London Higher members, physically, which was such a novelty. I've been doing most meetings like many of you online and to actually get out and about was just amazing. I'm very jealous. Um, I've not left my spare room in. Uh, and in Brighton, we have Adam Tuchel, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sussex. Adam, your highlight of the week, please. Um, hi, Mark. I've been um, at work actually since May. I've been coming in every day. But last night I went out with our security team um, just walking around the campus for an hour or so. And I talked to a bunch of students who were, you know, pretty happy actually to be here rather than back at home. So it was really energising and lovely to speak to them. And uh, I'm going to give myself a highlight of the week just because uh, we're not going to talk about the US election on the podcast otherwise, but it was the slow trickle of the uh, of the, of the the red wall states turning blue over the last 48 hours. Um, I, I think, I don't think I've, I've been so worried about an election um, in a long time and this one, uh, seems to be heading the right way. So I'm going to give myself a highlight of the week. It was particularly the Michigan going blue, um, where we think it's it's a time of recording. It's it's almost certainly all over for Donald Trump. So um, finally, a piece of good news um, in a in a very after a very bleak few years. Um, right, but let's dive right into it. Um, this week we published some original research on on student wellbeing um, and retention. Um, Diana, what what jumped out at you? Yeah, so I think. The research that you published, and well done for doing so, by the way, it, it does contain some really sobering findings, um, not least the fact that students are struggling with a, a lack of a sense of community right now. And more than half of those that you surveyed report that they feel lonely on a weekly or even daily basis. So I think the main message that jumps out at me is just how important the social aspect of higher education is. There's been a lot of focus on teaching and learning, but hardly any done on that more sort of personal social aspect. So there's definitely much more that we could be doing to ensure sure that the student experience this year is as connected as possible. Yeah, Adam, I don't know if you had time to catch up with the research, but do you think it reflects kind of your experience? You say you've been, you've been meeting students recently. Um, does it reflect what they're telling you? I think we need to be honest about this. There is a real challenge, but if you don't mind, I think we should need to put it into a broader context. Um, there is already a growing and an acute mental health crisis among young people. Um, this is pre-pandemic and it's also something that is not just in universities, and, and the evidence of the mental health crisis is worse among students, among young people who don't go to university rather than people who do. But it's it's a problem everywhere. 
Um, and the conditions of the last six or eight months have been awful for everybody. Um, and young people particularly who, you know, realistically, most young people at this age, uh, most people at this age are going out and they're, as Diana says, they're socialising, um, they're living the lives that we all led when we were their age. And suddenly they're not allowed to do so. So it really is not surprising. And I think students legitimately expect their universities to help them. Um, and I know all of us are working really hard to to provide that. And I think we can perhaps talk about some of the things that we can and can do better. We are doing what, and can do what better. Can, t- tell us what we're doing. Tell us what, what can what can universities do better? Because it's, it's clear that particularly the loneliness problem is is going to be uh, much worse this year than any of these for ob- obvious reasons. Well, I think of course it is. And I think we just have to recognise that some things we can't do. So what we what we can't do is we can't reproduce the full experience of going to, to a society, uh, being a member of a, of a student society, if it's just mediated through Teams or Zoom. Um, but this, but the societies are doing what the student societies are doing what they can. So there's great film nights. Um, there's great activities that that they're doing. And on Monday night, I think the night before the election, our politics society at Sussex put on an absolutely brilliant event. Um, a sort of one and a half, one and a half hour um, broadcast, which had speakers from. Um, around the world, actually, Washington Bureau of the Guardian, um, Washington Bureau of CNN, Alan Schultzman, who's the really respected political analyst, um, analyst um, just to bring our students involved. So those are some of the things we can do. We're putting in place a whole bunch of other activities, such as um, online exercise classes, um, quizzes for students. We're going to have a competition for uh, for students to win a, an award from me. But But I think we just also need to be realistic that the conditions are not the same as they are in normal years. So enhanced mental health support has to be part of the package. Can I just uh, chip in there as well? I mean, what Adam said is absolutely right. And I know from London higher members that universities are really doing their best to get students engaged. But I think we've got a, a double whammy of a challenge ahead. Firstly, this is lockdown two. In many ways, we exhausted a lot of the options that we did in lockdown one when things like Zoom quizzes were novel and new. I think it's fair to say that, you know, we've kind of exhausted those options now and people might be getting a bit sick of them. So we need to try and be a bit more innovative there. And then secondly, we are facing some of the toughest months ahead. The days are getting shorter, the evenings dark. I think this is when we'll see a lot of these mental health pressures exacerbated. So, you know, the the onus is on us now to try and get something in place. Mm. And I'm interested to get from both of you um, a sense of what, what you think we should be asking for from, from government in this in this respect. I don't think government's going to give us very much for this. So, you know, they did provide some very small amount of money to, to um, enhance mental health provision. Um, and it was at a very generic level. I do think that this is something that we're going to have to do ourselves. And um, the challenges are, are, as Diana says, they are very real. Um, I think if all we do, though, is we say it's about mental health support, then we're not providing the sort of proxies for social social engagement that we can do. And we are coming on later on to um, to discuss whether it was wise to have students back on campus. But I think there's a very strong mental health issue around this. So the more isolated students are the ones who don't live in flats with other people, who can't form a bubble of new friends. And, and actually, I think that's part of the answer. And I think part of the other answer is, is face-to-face teaching, because those are, although they're learning engagements, they're also social engagements, and I do think they help. I I totally agree with that. And I do think that where government could be helping is in terms of uh, reframing the narrative somewhat. At the moment, the correspondence that you're seeing is 
this isn't like it used to be. If you're not happy, complain. Well, how about this isn't like it used to be, but we're at the, you know, the start of a new dawn. We've got a chance to experiment, to shape the future, to do things better. And we want to work with you um, to create a better sort of learning environment for the future, both socially and in terms of teaching and learning. So I think there's a lot that could be done on that sort of the, the tone that's coming out of government at the moment. Mm. Um, what do you think, Dan, about this, this kind of idea about kind of a managed exit if students just aren't happy and there perhaps there's no light in the tunnel when it comes to uh, lockdowns and, and the pandemic? Um, should there be some kind of system that allows students to um, maybe pause their course, come back to it later on, move their credit around? I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the skills agenda later on, but it does seem like there's some obvious wins to be done, to be had to enable students to make the right choice for them without being penalised. Absolutely. I mean, ministers have been talking for, for years and I've worked with the past three of them about a sort of hop on, hop off approach, which is right for the individual. It's not all about, you know, a three year undergraduate degree in one block. And I think the time is now for us to experiment with some of these things. Definitely. Yes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I, I think that the, the risk is, um, is encouraging people to, to look at a very short term circumstance and think, well, I can be better. There is a better option for me when, you know, the reality at the moment is that there are no good options for, for anybody. Um, and you know, we're, we're all going to have to find a way. And I think all of us are going to have to find a way of coming to terms with the fact that circumstances have really changed. And often the grass is not greener elsewhere. My worry is, is if, and this isn't a, a producer worry, but my worry for students is if they leave now, then they'll be going back home. Um, they'll be um, in circumstances where they have no control of the, over their lives. Um, and things aren't going to be much better um, for them if they think, well, I'm going to, there's a better course for me elsewhere. Um, there's a better program for me elsewhere. I actually, I just think that we're all going to have to find ways of accommodating ourselves to what is not a particularly pleasant reality. And you can read the whole research report, Don't Drop Out, on wonky.com and follow the links in the show notes. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm James Kerr, Senior Policy Advisor at the University of Liverpool. My piece, Universities Need to Make the Case for Devolved Research Funding, looks at how universities can demonstrate the benefits of local control over R&D budgets with new power to their local areas. I argue we can do this through being clear about who and where our partners are, demonstrating a record of collaboration with a roadmap to more ambitious ways of working together, and making it a clear and evidence case for the economic benefits of devolved powers by developing our shared capacity to put additional funds to best use. Right, time of recording. England has headed into its second national lockdown. Adam, what is going on? So, so Mark, as you say, the national lockdown uh, came into force this morning when we, uh, as we record. Um, but universities are exempt from this, as are schools. Um, and I think that comes from a recognition that, that education is essential for people's long-term future um, and for their social, um, social good. Um, universities have, we're maintaining our laboratories are open. Um, they are COVID secure. So the difference between now and March is that we have put in place um, substantial measures to ensure that social distancing is maintained. And these are the cleanest places I've ever, ever worked in. Um, so on the face of it, things, things are very good. Um, things are not exactly the same as they were last February or January because quite a substantial part of our teaching is now online. So we do have blended learning. Um, and, um, you know, that's working quite well, I think, in most places. Um, there are some universities, of course, in areas where there's much higher levels of, of COVID-19 and then um, in my own um, that have gone fully online. Um, but uh, I think on the whole, things are as positive as they possibly could be for us, Mark. 
Hmm. There's been lots of calls this week for, for the whole sector to move completely online. So we've had UCU and NUS, and then Indie Sage has a report out suggesting that um, universities be better off um, all online. But Diana, I mean, uh, what are students meant to do with their time? <laughs> if, if everything's online and uh, lots of clubs and stocks are closed, sporting activity is closed, what are students meant to do? <laughs> Well, I think we've just discussed that in the first section as well, the importance of students being able to get onto campus for learning and teaching. It's not just about um, the physical act of learning. It's a, it's an opportunity for them to actually be in a room, have physical contact with other people, socially distanced, of course. Um, and it just a- automatically makes you feel better. So I am actually really grateful that um, the government has said that universities can remain open in inverted commas there. Um, As for what they're doing the rest of the time, I think that really goes back to what we were saying earlier about finding innovative ways to use the technology that we do have to enable students to to connect better socially um, and to maybe take activities online that wouldn't otherwise be. We are at the beginning of a new dawn, as as I said before, and I think, you know, we have to experiment now. Um, One thing I would like to raise, though, about the guidance is it's been great, um, particularly representing London universities now, where there's a lot of commuter students, that it does recognise commuter students this time. But there is a little loophole in it, which I've been pondering over, and I don't know if you've noticed. Um, Obviously, it says that catering for residential students can continue. um, But it says, and I quote, all other catering outlets on campus would need to follow the takeaway only model, and you should take your food home to the place where you live to consume it. Now, if you're a university with students who commute an hour or more to get to campus, as, as many students do in London, and, and you're that university that's done your best to keep your catering service open for these students so they can eat and drink um, while they're on campus, the limited need to move out, out and about into the wider community, then if you close the service, you're now basically forcing these students to leave campus for their, for their coffee or their midday meal and to move out into the wider community and increase the risk of spreading or catching the virus. And that doesn't sound very sensible to me and it's not very helpful to those universities with a big commuter base and I'm actually worried it's a backdoor way of, of forcing some institutions to take all teaching online so I think that's definitely mm. one to watch. Yeah well I mean, I mean you read, read the DfE guidance and, and subsequent documents that come out of them it doesn't, it doesn't it often doesn't sound like they really understand what a university is and they, they seem to think of them as kind of big schools basically and it doesn't it doesn't appear that they understand how much university kind of bleeds into its locality and local community. And I mean, it's source of constant frustration here at, uh, at Wonky Towers. I mean, there's this other issue that the guidance raises is, is Christmas. And um, it's still, we're still waiting on government guidance about uh, how students are meant to get home at Christmas. This has been now pending for, uh, for several weeks. Adam, there's been a lot of speculation in the press for the last couple of days that uh, many students will have basically decided to not wait for the DfE guidance as if they were anyway, and hightail it back home before the lockdown started. Have you seen any evidence of that? Well, we've seen the, we've seen a tiny bit of evidence. I th- but do you know, for me, this is one of the really good reasons why we shouldn't be moving online. And I think this is why the UCU and the National Union students are really making a mistake. Um, and I think we need to, and I'll come to I'll come to the Christmas issue in a second. But I think we need to have a proportionate understanding of what's happening. So, I mean, my university is in a lower area of low. COVID risk. We've currently got 19 cases um, on campus, which is very low. Um, we had three new ones over the weekend. Um, but Manchester, which has obviously been very much in the news, the University of Manchester had no new cases over the last three days. So it seems as if the wave, and I, I don't want to tempt fate, but it seems as if the wave is passing and students are at the lowest risk 
of getting any complications when they get um, COVID-19. And I think there is a real worry that if we move online um, completely, then exactly what you say, Mark, will happen, which is students will disperse. Um, and dispersing into more vulnerable communities is not a good thing. Um, so I, I think there's a really strong moral case for us, not just in terms of the things we've been talking about in terms of enhancing um, people's lives, but also in terms of protecting the broader community that we retain, uh, that students remain being taught, particularly on campus-based um, universities. I think the situation for community students is, slight, is slightly different. Um, the Christmas issue is a, is a challenge, though, because we've given, the government has given a very strong commitment that students will be able to return home for Christmas. My own view is that the way that we'll have to do that is to have mass asymptomatic testing in the week before they go. Um, clearly, the national capacity for in, in test and trace has just not been what we need. And we keep on being promised that it's going to meet our requirements soon. Um, I just hope that for the sake of the whole country that we're there within the next three or four weeks. Yeah, and on I was just going to say on that, um, this is where I'm seeing a lot of London Higher members as well, really working with their own public health authorities and their local communities to, as you say, Adam, sort of double down on that own um, asymptomatic testing, um, be that through saliva tests rather than the national um, coronavirus testing programme, because I th at the moment that seems our only way through the, the mess that we're in. There is some there is some positive noises here, isn't there? Because the 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 trial in Liverpool of the of, of attempting to test the the whole population with those instant lateral flow tests, there's some indication that um, the idea is that that will be rolled out on a national level at the end of this lockdown in England, which would, if you just about squint, um, give us enough time to potentially test um, all students and staff everywhere uh in time to kind of get them home safely if they're if they prove negative have you been trialing anything like that at, uh, at sussex adam um we we haven't trialed it and, and our local director of public health is actually not in favor of asymptomatic testing at the moment because of the the um the danger of of people behaving as if they're clear um because of the the tests only work within a particular window but i think if we work on a national basis then things will change and there's a much as i say the cases are much lower now than they were even three or four weeks ago in most universities. And I think that that will probably change the competence levels around the um, direct public health around the country. Yeah, and, and, and you assume the central government as well. Uh, I mean, I, I agree. I think that the data does show we're, we're probably over the, sec the, the kind of the, the student peak, if you like. Um, but uh, it is that risk of, of, of bringing it home, bringing it back to bringing it back to our communities that is, is clearly going to be worries. I've seen, I've seen some models that... Um, does push it does does indicate that that would push a kind of third peak in uh, December January, which um, would obviously be. This brings me. <laughs> this brings me back. This brings me back to uh, this question of loneliness. So, if ass assuming we're able via some some kind of combination of um, isolation and mass asymptomatic testing to get the majority of students who who live on campus or live at university back home in time for Christmas, that's obviously going to leave. Um, a whole bunch of students stuck, not able to go home, assuming that they are have tested positive and the guidance says um, they're not allowed to go home. Of course, we, we don't know what the guidance is and, and will be, but I think it's it's fair to guess it would we'll say something like that. Um, I mean, this this seems to me to be a real danger when we you know we talk about talk about loneliness. Can you imagine anything worse than being tested positive for COVID, possibly feeling really rotten with the virus? And being stuck in uh, your student accommodation while your family is at home celebrating Christmas, um, surely there's. Surely we need to put a kind of contingency plan in place for that to make sure those students don't completely fall through the through the cracks. 
I, I, um, Mark, of course, of course, that's right. And I think it's worth remembering that we are that um, all universities with international students are used to having significant numbers of students over holiday periods when all of those things apply. So um, even if they don't, even if they come from countries which don't celebrate uh, Christmas, because um, the period is so quiet and because they're so far away from their families, um, we always put a huge effort into making sure that we can um, bring an esprit de corps to our students um, over Christmas. And I think, you know, clearly under lockdown conditions or, or pandemic conditions, um, the support we can give them will be smaller. But, you know, with luck and with um, uh, with good fortune, we will be beyond the lockdown. So we, there are things we'll be able to do which involve um, people interacting with one another over Christmas. And I think it's a really important that we make sure we look after our students, whether they're from the UK or, or from overseas. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with Adam. I was already going to say that universities in general do have a lot of students anyway for whom their university is their main home, be they care leavers or estranged students, international students who can't get home, or even postgraduate students, again, who are resident all year round. Um, so, you know, this year we're adding to that the students who may be testing positive. And of course, they are in a different situation. If they are quarantining because they're positive, they can't get out of their room, unlike the other students. So I do think we are going to have to think of ways in which we can reach these students. And if that involves taking them Christmas dinner, dropping them off a present, and it's not ideal, but it's showing we care. A good example of that is, um, is at Easter, we had um, about two and a half thousand students here at, on campus at Sussex. And we gave every, we, we delivered an Easter egg to everybody. And although it was a very small gesture, it was a it was a sense of just showing that we cared, and it went down really well with our students. Now, here to tell us about a controversial new OFS metric, start to success, it's Wonky's Data Supremo DK. Last Wednesday, I highlighted OFS's new experimental start to success metric, which is currently out for comment to designated contacts within providers in England. It's a compound metric derived from non-continuation and graduate employment indicators, and when it's officially released later this month, it will be available at provider and subject level. With graduate employment and non-continuation being the last TEF metric standing as the National Student Survey falls from favour, it doesn't take much imagination to tie this new plan into whatever may come of the Pierce review of TEF and its response. But we're keeping a closer eye on start-to-success's utility within the OFS's regulatory baseline around the B conditions. If you cast your mind back to the allocation of additional student numbers as part of the failed numbers cap, the same two metrics provided the entry criteria for bids there, and they feature in DFE's condemnation of the NSS as, an, as examples of robust metrics. So you can see they're very important right now. And there's clearly something afoot here. You can play with an approximation of the provider-level plot on the site to start to get some sense of it. I've even run the two separate metrics as a scatter plot. There's no correlation, R squared is around 0.3, but as you might expect, the Russell Group do better and Million Plus do less well where two measures are linked so closely to student intake characteristics. Anyway, do look out for the STS data in the weeks to come, and thank you to the many people who have talked to me about letters from OFS I'm not really meant to see. My inbox is always open for chat like that. Right, now, the pandemic might have washed away much of what the government planned for policy-wise, but there's plenty of interesting uh, reports and policy action happening around the edges with uh, reports on levelling up and skills. Diana, can you, you talk us through them? Yeah, okay. So this week, we've seen the topic of levelling up, as you say, brought firmly back on the sector's agenda with a publication of two new reports from the UPP Foundation. Now, these look at the role that universities can play in so-called left-behind towns and cities. And 
they actually made the headlines this week with the suggestion that universities could be the key to saving derelict high streets if they take on the role of anchor tenant, if you like, and disused shops become used as lecture halls, for example. But the essence of the reports is much deeper than that. And it's, it's all about using the civic power of universities to benefit not just the towns and cities that they're located in, but extending this civic orbit and to help to create opportunities for those in post-industrial communities as well. Great. And the, um, the policy exchange report out just, uh, just this morning, Morning. has also interesting things to say about kind of the broader skills landscape is there anything that jumps out at you there yeah okay so yeah the, the think tank policy ba- policy exchange is uh, back with yet another contribution to the debate about the uk's technical skills deficit which in uh, david goodhart's introduction is of course linked to the oversupply of bachelor degrees but but if we gloss over that you can see there are actually some some valid recommendations in the report which which ask government to stop pitting universities against FE colleges and to suggest suggest ways in which universities can become part of the solution to more level four and five provision and this includes exploring with universities future fee models for this technical provision or using the DFE restructuring fund to support universities facing financial challenges to focus on higher level technical skills and we know some universities are already doing that like the University of Sunderland comes to my mind Um, And all of this is based on a case study of how Nottingham Trent University is reshaping its contribution to two local areas in North Nottinghamshire. Great. Well, there's a lot in these. Um, Let's take take the levelling up first, Adam. I mean, one of the things that struck me about this this work was about how universities can play a role where there isn't an existing, where there is an existing higher education provision, you know, the cold spots and the the, the left behind towns. Um, And I wonder if you've thought about, about that and, um, the role your, your university can play. Um, yes, we have. Yes, we have. So, um, I have to be honest that we've done less of this than we intended to um, two years ago because the nature of the uh, the landscape has been so difficult. Um, but over the last six or eight months, we've really taken a particular focus. So, you may know that Crawley is the, one of the most affected towns in the whole of the United Kingdom um, as a result of the pandemic because its dependence on Gatwick Airport is so total. Um, so we've been working very closely with um, partner college, uh, Chichester College Group, um, and uh, with others, in order to try to put an offer to young people in in that city, in, in that town, um, that can help them to rescale and retool for the for the future. Um, inevitably, this is now this is in development rather than completed. Um, but I, I do think universities have a particular responsibility to um, to help out um, in areas where there is a lack of provision and where fundamentally young people are just not moving. Um, so. Yes, I think there is. I think there's also a challenge, though, that we always get faced with, which is that universities are expected to solve all of the problems everywhere. When actually just doing our core job at, at the moment is really quite a challenge for everybody. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, if I take my London Hire hat off for a moment, if members permit me, and put my governor hat on at the University of Worcester, I mean, I'm watching them do a really exciting project by branching out into Dudley um, and set up a university um, college there to basically double down on these technical provisions um, and, and Dudley as you know is probably has one of the largest skills deficits in the UK so that's that's a really good example and also going back to my London base um Dave Phoenix at uh, London Southbank University has been working for the past few years now on uh, fostering better links with Lambeth College in his local area and the FE links there um, so there is a lot of work going on be that in what we would consider more to 
deprived areas of the UK, but also in London, where there are pockets of deprivation which are often overlooked. Yeah, and then and there's also um, there's lots of interesting collaboration, isn't there, between um, HEIs and and further education colleges? I mean, the um, Association of Colleges said said that on the back of the policy exchange report today that you know there's no need to kind of pit pit the two sectors against each other, and there's clearly more scope for collaboration, isn't there? I, I couldn't agree more. I thought that um, David Hughes' piece on the on the wonky site today was absolutely terrific. So, um, you know, we don't usually expect policy exchange reports to be particularly friendly to universities, and I I thought that the introduction by David Goodhart was a classic of its kind, where universities are held responsible. I saw for recent political eruptions such as the Bernie Sanders wave or Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. So, put aside all of the the transformative changes to our Western societies over the last decade, and and you can pin the blame on universities. But I do think we need to accept, um, as as we accepted when the Yorga report was published, that there is a real problem with the half of young people who don't go to university. Um, we underinvest in them and we under-support them. What I found disappointing uh, about the policy exchange report is that it seemed to be a bit of a claim for universities to be doing the job rather than working in partnership properly with um, FE providers. And, and David Hughes' Um, was really, really tough on this. And I thought he said, let's not get into a turf war about who owns the higher technical education space. Um, not only is there room for colleges and universities, we all owe it to the communities we serve to make sure the pathways are clear. And I thought that summed it up very nicely. We have a, a joint responsibility um, to serve our, our local and our national community. There, there, is a, there is a bigger kind of political and, and philosophical shift in, in thinking in, in governments around, in, around the world, which is I think I think driving some of this, and Goodhart brings a lot of it out um, in his recent work. Uh, but the, uh, notably, Michael Sandel, the um, American philosopher, uh, has written the, about this again recently. Um, Debbie Debbie on the site points it out this morning in her review of the, the policy exchange report. Um, and he he argues. I'll, I'll just give you the direct quote from uh, his new book, the, the Tyranny of Merit: uh, Building politics around the idea that a college degree, for that he means university because it's the US, is a condition of dignified work and social esteem, has a corrosive effect on democratic life. It devalues the contributions of those without a diploma, fuels prejudice against less educated members of society, effectively excludes most working people from representative government and provokes political backlash. And that's, that's a quote from Tyranny of Merit. We know he's, he's been quite influential in Labour circles um, over the last few years, particularly Ed Miliband, who talked about the forgotten 50%. You've got this government who are essentially making the same argument in different ways. And is there a, is there a kind of risk that if the the sector doesn't really get ahead of this or doesn't doesn't kind of figure out how it can plug itself into the, the skills landscape properly, that we're going to be on the wrong side of that political backlash, as Michael Sandel talked about it more more permanently. And I'm, I'm interested in both, you know, both your sense about, you know, this long-term, if you agree that there's this long-term philosophical shift away from universities happening now, um, you know, what we, what we do to get ahead of that. I'm thinking about it, but, you know, Having grown up in one of the only few counties in England without a university, and it still doesn't have one, um, I don't think this rings true because there's a reason I'm a governor at the University of Worcester because that is a neighbouring county. And I have seen over the past decade how that has changed aspirations in the local area, not just in Worcestershire, but in Herefordshire, where I grew up, and in Gloucestershire as well, even though they've got a university now. And that filters across. And it's not seen 
as academic versus non-academic because the kind of provisions of Worcester provide they're very big on nursing very big of de on degrees on social um sorry very big on degrees of social value healthcare um and people can see the direct benefits of that um and i don't think that has unleashed in my local area a, a sort of anti anti-academic vibe or whatever it is that, uh, that is sort of being blamed at the moment so no i'm a bit more skeptical about that i'd say I, I agree with Diana. Often, I think probably for the last 20 years, we've thought about university education as being a, sing, a single thing. Um, but of course, it's hugely varied. Nobody turns around and says um, that we that engineers or, or doctors or nurses, as, as, um, as Diana says, are unimportant, um, or that they're somehow more, more important than people who don't. I, th I think the trouble is, is that we always get into these binary debates where university good, non-university bad, or um, university bad, FE good. And, you know, fundamentally, we just need to think about our societies as being hugely complex. Um, and that what we need to do is we need to make sure that we can provide the right education um, and indeed the right social value uh, to people, whatever they do and for where, wherever they come. And one of the, the things I find very, very concerning is that our discourse becomes far too um, black and white rather than based upon nuance and, uh, and complexity. We, we do have a problem, though, with this government and or you could argue um, not just this government, other parts of the, the Conservative Party, uh, you know, also think similarly about this, which is um, essentially HE doesn't provide good value for money um, and that um, they can get better economic returns from from FE. We've also got, but it's not hard to see. It's not hard to see how the Labour Party can end up in a position like that um, at the next election either. I mean, they've been making noises like that uh, since you know before before the Corbyn era, as I, as I say. So, I think there's a risk that we say, well, you know, we know the value of higher education, um, but just saying, just kind of making that case isn't cutting through anymore. I mean. Like we talked at the start, DfE thinks of universities as, as big schools. There are other parts of government that might see, well, a vaccine, the first vaccine, viable vaccine for COVID-19 coming out of the University of Oxford, and in the same breath think, well, we, you know, we should uh, give universities less money. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that, Mark. I think what, um, I, I think, and we have to be reflective as institutions and as leaders of institutions about um, what we offer to society, because clearly at some point society's uh, not as happy with us as we might be. I think the other thing, though, is that we need to recognise is that people are often very uncomfortable generically with the idea of universities. But when you talk to um, politicians, whether they're um, they're in the Labour Party or whether they're the Conservative Party, they are fiercely supportive of their local universities um, and fiercely supportive of their local universities, even if in the same breath they're, um, they're disparaging what their local universities might stand for. So there is a real job, I think, for all of us to do, not just um, at the rhetorical national level, but to work really closely with um, politicians and with our communities to really to, gen, um, to to demonstrate the value of institutions without being too defensive. And I, I do think we need always to be open to criticism um, and to learn from those criticisms. I totally agree. And in a way, uh, this global pandemic that we're in can really help us because it does give the higher education sector a chance to get on the front foot when it comes to redefining the skills agenda. Um, 
it's all well and good saying FE can train you for a particular job, but we've just seen a lot of industries crash and burn, sadly, and those jobs may well not be there to come back to. And it's all about if we can show that the transferable skills that higher education provides in the new digital world will be applicable for the future, I think we have a great opportunity there. So once again, I'm going back to let's flip the narrative to glass half full and let's make sure we're making the most of it. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Apple Podcasts or your favourite Android podcast directory or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Diana Adam, DK Jim and everyone else at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay safe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.